So the other day I came home and my daughter had traditional Italian music playing. You know, like when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie. Like everything was clean. There were handmade signs everywhere. The table was set and there was this big sign up front that said pizza picture. Picture spelled something like P-I-K-T-S-H-U-R. My daughter's six years old. Now, my daughter had done things like this before. We play restaurant all the time. Uh, she has real, authentic uh, wait staff pads. She is constantly experimenting with real food, making up dishes. She loves hosting high, high hospitality gifts on this one. So a little later in the evening, she comes up to me and asks, Dad, why is no one coming? What do you mean, I asked? She told me that she had put signs outside on the front porch indicating that there was a new restaurant right here in our house. She had the menus ready and everything. So I began to explain, sadly, that moment as a parent, I began to explain reality to her while trying to not completely kill her dream. And as I began to explain why people aren't going to just walk into our house, I actually found myself beginning to ideate with her, like dream with her about what actually could happen. So, so maybe not this, Harper, but maybe we could do this. So fast forward another hour or so, I don't remember, and Harper's out on our front porch asking our neighbors across the street if they would like to come over for some pizza. And because they are just wonderful folks, they, they did. And I sat there in awe of my six-year-old's imagination and persistence in asking. And I kept going back to this moment over the next couple of days where she asked me. I just thought it was so amazing and funny and, and uh, just sort of incredible that she asked me with complete sincerity, why aren't people coming? So today I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He's setting up these outposts of the way of Jesus all throughout uh, the ancient world. These outposts of faith and hope and love. And uh, it's in the city of Ephesus that he writes this letter to. And he gets to the end of this one section and he begins um, going off on this sort of this doxology, this, this prayer. And he's wrapping up this big point. And in Ephesians 3.20, he says, and even if you're brand new to the Bible, you may have heard this passage before. He says, now to him who is able to do, so speaking of God, now to God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We're going to dive into this in a moment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray you would open our eyes that we would um, in some way see you. Open our ears that we would in some way hear you. Our hearts, Lord, that we would in some beautiful and mysterious way encounter you, encounter truth, goodness, and beauty, and love, and faith, and hope, Lord. Um, I ask, Lord, in this just continually trying time, in this time where we can't... um, most of us can't be together in person, uh, that even, you know, over the internet, in a broadcast, in a Zoom, to folks that are together, maybe with a few folks in a backyard watching this, Lord, I just, I pray that, um, 
God, that you would give us expectant hearts for what you might do, how you might encourage us or how you might push us or grow us or convict us. Lord, we're, we're open. We want to be open to, to goodness and open to truth, Lord. Pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. So in this passage, I want to turn our attention to two words, the word ask and the word imagine. Ask and imagine. As we enter uh, a second week of First Seek, if you're new with us, this is uh, our two weeks of focused prayer, worship, and fasting. We do this twice a year. Uh, and this is just kind of as we're preparing for a new season. Most people I know, this feels sort of more like January 1st this time of year than January 1st does. And so as we're taking time as a church community, praying and fasting and focusing our attention on the Lord and, and in some more intentional ways, I, want, I wanted to speak on this passage because I want to raise this question. What do we want? What do you want specifically? What are you asking for? If you've been joining with us in prayer in, to, to, in some regards over the last week or so, like what are you asking for? What in general, as you enter the, the fall, are you asking for? Be honest with yourself right now for a moment. What are your desires? What are you hoping will happen? And, and for those of you that have been praying, like what are you praying for? What are you asking God for? See, see, the true Christianity, being an apprentice of Jesus is not about running away from your desires. It's about running into the heart of them. I'm guessing when you hear someone like me, a pastor in this context of a church gathering sort of, like <laughs> you, you're gonna wanna like answer the question, what do you want with maybe some default, big, vague, disconnected thing like, well, you know, I'm a Christian. What do I want? Like, well, I want world peace. I want to be kinder. I want uh, the love of God to be known by folks, which are all really good things. But I think when you begin a new season, when you reset, when you like head to school or when the ministry year begins or when a move happens, some of you just moving into this city, welcome. It's a great moment to ask again, what do you really want? And if the answer is something trivial, like I want a new car, you're going to be tempted to beat yourself up or sidestep it. But we actually have to begin there, like with reality. Like, where are we? Where do we live? What am I asking for right now? What do you want? What do you want to pray for? What are you worrying about these days? We have to begin from a place of honesty. And that might bring up some things that, um, that I don't know, you wish that you didn't want, or you feel like if you told somebody else, that you wanted that, you'd be judged. You feel like that's just too shallow or too thin. See, in general, the problem isn't our desires. The problem is often that we don't desire enough. Our desires don't go far enough. The way of Jesus actually deepens when you're honest about what you want and then allow God and allow the scriptures to transform those desires. Because as we follow Jesus, we begin to discover that we actually don't want enough. Our wants are too small and too shallow, and we don't have very much imagination. Paul writes now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. We often, I think, even have a deficit of imagination. We either don't have space to imagine what life could look like in the future, or we don't trust that the future could be more 
Like we don't trust that we could change or that the city can change or that tomorrow can be different than today. The great lie, to be honest with you, is that this right now, this moment is as good as it gets. This is a great passage I quote often. And Paul talks about like outwardly I'm wasting away, but inwardly I could be being made new day in and day out. To be alive in Christ, to walk with Jesus is to challenge whatever lies you've like bought into that stops you from asking what could be. How could life look in the future? Now, this brings up another question for me, which is what do I expect um, from God? Like, what do I expect that God can do? If I do ask, if I do imagine, like, what are my expectations of God? We do a lot of talking about what God expects from us, but what about the other way? There's some sort of relationship here. Is there a relationship between what you do and what you expect of God? That's good. I'm going to say that one more time. Is there a relationship between what you do and what you expect of God? Who are we dealing with when we even talk about God? Maybe a question you need to go back to. I think it's incredibly appropriate, hear me, I think it's incredibly appropriate to have high expectations of who God is and what he's doing in the world. I think it's okay. Like, do we believe that if we draw near, like the scriptures say, he will draw near to us, just like any relationship. Do we want to seek God and find God, not sit back cynically and wait? If we are called, and if you were to buy into this, we are sons and daughters made in God's image. Should we actually expect to have a son and daughter relationship with God? Should we expect blessing? Should we expect discipline? Should we expect love? Should we expect a God that's for us? Many of you have had a season filled with trust and expectation toward God before. I think a lot of us have had moments where maybe we first came, and I'm speaking to followers of Jesus here, where you first encountered the grace and love of God. Maybe it was early church days. For me, it's that camp I talk about a lot that I experienced uh, alongside um, like college students that were just a little older than me when I was in high school and came alive to the things of God. But then when we don't see as much God as we wanted to or do now, or something is not answered the way we want, things begin to break down or, or We just drift and we stop listening. But we can start to lower our expectations and forget those pivotal moments. We can begin to lose our childlike wonder. I think what begins to happen for some of us then is we get discipled, we get formed, we get apprenticed by disappointment. We become cynics. And then we have the audacity to call that cynicism wisdom and truth-telling. It's like we forget that we have a role in this relationship. We stop obeying God's call to seek him. Things weren't how you thought because your expectations were maybe built around the way that you wanted God to move. Or sometimes when our immediate needs aren't met, we just stop caring or we get complacent when things are really good. I say all of this because we get in danger of being polite unbelievers who use like believer or religious language to explain that God doesn't do fill in the blank anymore, right? This is the major danger, just a major danger. (laughs) We can too easily sit back from an indifferent posture and position 
see things like see things we like and don't like and attribute what we want to God and make assumptions about what God is up to from a really passive place. I see people sadly lose their hunger to learn or to experience or to practice the presence of God. If none of this relates to you at all, that's amazing. But there's a very real like cultural force, cultural forces that are pressing against our wants and pressing against our imaginations. Cynicism is the new religion of our world in so many ways. It's like whatever fill in the blank is, this new religion teaches us that that thing, that it, isn't as good as it seems. It will let you down. It will betray you. That institution, that church, that politician, that authority figure, that parent, they're all going to let you down. Whatever you do, don't get your hopes up. Whatever you think it is, whatever it appears to me, it will burn you. Just give it enough time. And the way Jesus just confronts this corrosion of the heart with the insistence that God has not abandoned the world, that hope is real and that a light has come, is coming, and ultimately will come. The way of Jesus charges into the temple of cynicism with, I don't know, like a whip of hope, (laughs) overturning tables of despair, driving out the priests of that jaded cult, announcing there's a new day and it's not like the one that came before it. The way of Jesus whispers the not yet, the thing you're hoping for, asking for, imagining it will be worth it. It reminds us to watch and to expect and to wait and ultimately to trust. The follower of Jesus is an expectant person. You guys know I love that word. Someone who is always taking it for granted that there is something about to break through from God. Isn't that a good thing to take for granted? I just take it for granted. Of course, something's coming. Of course, there's opportunities to turn this brokenness into beauty. Something's about to burst through the ordinary and uncover a new light on the landscape. It's a faith that God is going to speak or show something. That reality is going to open up when you're awake and when you're aware and when you're expectant. That God can do immeasurably, abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. See, when you're asking and imagining, you will more, uh, more than likely set your intentions. For instance, if you're asking to become more patient, imagining, uh, which is where I'm at right now, or imagining like becoming more forgiving, a forgiving person this year, you set your intentions. I'm going to learn how to be more patient. Like I'm going to ask every patient person that I meet like a million questions. I'm going to inhale every bit of info on patience. You can see how if you're willing to let them, your intentions are nuclear. When you decide what you want, when you can, when, when you can imagine what you want to see, you get after it. I have a friend who's going through like a, basically a midlife crisis right now, and he has just resolved to not waste the moment. It's like, how will I have a redemptive midlife crisis? It's coming. It's coming. It's here. And so he's setting up disciplines. He's bringing people into his life. He's being honest about his sin. He's acknowledging his idols. He's talking and talking with others and carving out more time than ever to pray and to be still. Just the other day, I had a guy in our congregation, this soft-spoken man come to me and just say, Andrew, I want to be discipled. I want to be an apprentice of Jesus. I want to go after this. Will you help me? 
So you can decide you're going to grow. And when that's aligned, when you're asking and imagining is aligned with the way of Jesus, when your desires are deepening, when your love is truer and your heart is beating with God's heart, when all of that happens, Paul's telling the church in Ephesus, that's only just the beginning. You have no idea how far God can take this. Now, Paul is so amped about this. The word or words uh, that are strung together uh, that he's using in this section in the Greek, he's using all these, this compound word, um, the compound word that's translated like abundantly more. He's using all this amped up language. One uh, scholar says it's a, uh, a rare super superlative, uh, one scholar calls it. And, and the word basically means like it's translated, immeasurably more or abundantly more, quite beyond all measure. One translation is infinitely more than. Paul uses this compound word two other times uh, in, I believe they're both in 1 Thessalonians or once in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And uh, the language there is like more earnestly and very highly. My point in pointing this out is Paul's using this cranked up language. And he uses this word ask which has all this urgency associated with it in the Greek that conveys this idea of asking for something even for yourself. One scholar says about the use of this word ask in this passage, he writes, what I have asked for is as nothing compared to the ability of my God to give. I've asked for a cup full and the oceans remain. Come on. I've asked for a cup full and the ocean remains. I've asked for a sunbeam and the sun abides. My best asking falls immeasurably short of my father's giving. It's beyond all that we could ask. So good. Keep going with this little word study here. He then uses the word, right, able, and he uses the word power in this section, which is the word dunamis which is where we get the word dynamite. So if I, you'd allow me to have a little fun with the etymology here, it's like God's bringing some like power and dynamite to the situation. There's so much crammed into these few verses. And so I have a question. How can Paul say all this? Where does Paul's confidence come from that whatever I ask or imagine God will do abundantly more? Now let's go back to the first few verses at the beginning of this chapter and a little context before I read. So we're still in Ephesians 3. Paul uh, is addressing, and he's got in his church community, Jews and Gentiles. So the real quick version is Jews and Gentiles don't get along. Gentiles are viewed by the Jews, the Hebrew tribe, which are the people of God meant to be a blessing to the world. These Gentiles are being viewed by these Hebrews as dogs, inferior. They are in the wrong tribe. You do not associate with them. This is pure racism and tribalism. And Paul writes in Ephesians 3, chapter 1, or verse 1, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. So it first says like, all right, this is my story. Like he's saying, look, uh, you've heard my story about grace and how God's taken hold of my heart. And then he goes on in verse four and reading this. And he says, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Bottom line here, if you're new to the scriptures, Jesus revealed the fullness in flesh and blood, what God's like and his intentions for 
humanity. Then he goes on, verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus is king, Jesus is the way to life, he says that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Heirs together, these dogs, this other tribe, these misfits, these people you don't associate with are heirs. Which, that's just throwaway language for us now because we don't have kings and queens in our country. But this is huge language with Israel. Members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Why go back and talk about this at the end of this message? Because Paul's not just hoping that God can do abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine to like pump up the crowd like a bad preacher trick. He's seen some things, namely one thing, one extraordinary thing. God has broken down the dividing wall between these tribes and is, in Paul's words, bringing about a new humanity. God was able to do far beyond what he had, what God, what Paul had prayed for or could even imagine. God was bringing Jews and Gentiles together in one body with God's provision of love. Both groups could now function in some semblance of harmony together in the church. Glory would then come to God in the church for uniting these irreconcilable groups and for enabling them to love and to work together as fellow members of the body of Christ. California is on fire. There are riots in the streets. There is a global pandemic. Injustice in our country has been revealed. Our nation has arguably never been more divided. Our economy is struggling. School is weird and hard and uncertain. Many of us feel our hearts hardening to the concerns of others. We're trying just to keep up with what are the right and wrong things to say and the mess that is virtue signaling on social media. We are exhausted. Trust me, all that stuff is some Jew and Gentile type problems. We can't fix this stuff ourselves. But we can cry out to God. We can set our hearts on Him and then our nuclear intentions towards joining God in His renewing, reconciling work can happen. So as we enter week two of First Seek, let's get desperate before God and cry out for mercy. Not panicky prayers, but prayers of deep humility and deep repentance that are filled with Jesus-oriented kingdom expectancy and kingdom imagination. Isaiah 64, the writer says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Harper could see it. Harper could see the restaurant. Harper could see in her mind the people eating 
the orders being taken, the cars parked outside. There was no deficit of imagination and there was no trepidation in her asking. Friends, family, skeptics, the folks who are excited to be out on the prayer walks today, my prayer is that God will give you greater imagination and grow your desires for goodness and truth and faith and hope and love.